Let's now turn for our scripture reading to Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll read from verse 10 through verse 15. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, last time we saw the need to stand fast in the Lord. Uh, in various ways, the call to stand is repeated some four times in a few verses, and uh, we are to stand fast in the Lord, because in Christ alone is our strength. But the fact that he is our strength doesn't mean that we are passive. It doesn't mean that uh, we are taught in Scripture to, as the expression goes, just let go and let God, as if our only calling is to somehow rest inactively, trusting in God. We are to trust in God, and we are to rest in him. But that doesn't mean that we are to do nothing. Rather, we are uh, strong in the Lord by being equipped also in him to resist our enemies, to fight against them, to overcome them. Now, in uh, verse uh, 13, or 14 rather, we begin to, to study the equipment that Christ has provided us for this warfare in which we are engaged. He has given us Christian armor, and uh, we'll see that that's not merely a defensive kind of armor to resist attack. Uh, it is defensive, but uh, the text gives a description of a soldier in a kind of magnificent array. The word that's translated armor is the word from which we get the word panoply, which describes a kind of uh, majestic array. It uh, speaks here of a fully armed soldier with, with heavy defensive gear, but also with a readiness and with uh, weapons for attack. And so, and so the picture of our text with regard to Christian warfare is not that of soldiers that are, that are hunkered down in trenches, uh, waiting to be attacked, hoping they are not attacked. Uh, it's not a picture of uh, people behind heavily uh, fortified walls, but it's the picture of fully equipped soldiers engaging the enemy on the field of battle. We are to be strong in the Lord in his invincible armor, his unconquerable armor, beginning with the belt of truth. In verse 14, we read, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth. Now this is the first of three uh, implements of this armor that we're going to be considering today, the following three, the Lord willing, next week. But we notice that the armor that we have in Christ begins with truth. Truth is placed in the foreground, before devotion, uh, before love. 
Those are the kinds of things that people might be inclined to place in the foreground as of first importance when it comes to religion. The importance is devotion and love. Yes, devotion indeed and love are of crucial importance, but it is to be a devotion that is according to truth, and it is to be a love according to the truth. Or mere devotion and uh, and love can be sentiment or religiosity without a strong foundation in reality. So truth is essential. It's of first importance. Soldiers of Paul's day would put on a, a heavy uh, leather belt over a, a short tunic. And uh, this would provide support for their lower back. You'll find that sometimes weightlifters will actually put on a leather, a leather belt because it uh, provides support uh, for their back, and it serves to strengthen them as they strain living he lifting heavy weights. But this leather belt would also be uh, not only a, a way of providing support, but upon this belt, the, the breastplate would be attached, and the, their sword would be attached to it. It's mentioned here first, uh, because it is uh, most basic to a soldier's outfit. It stands then also for what is basic to the Christian life and warfare, and that is truth. And uh, truth here does not uh, refer to truthfulness in the sense that we must speak truth. Yes, that is true and important, but it's not referring to uh, the subjectivity of our observance of truth in terms of our speech, nor our sincerity, but it's speaking of objective truth. The truth of God's word. Of course, we can't stand up to uh, Satan if we are hypocrites or if we are liars, but the point is that Satan is the, himself the great liar and uh, the great deceiver. Jesus describes him actually in that same chapter that I read following our reading of the law in uh, John chapter 8 when he says of the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. The desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. That also suggests that there was a, there was a time when he, as created by God, was in the truth, but he didn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. When people live by lies, when they speak lies, they show that they are basically of the seed of the serpent, showing their likeness to the devil. And then he says, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Jesus was the truth teller. Jesus is the truth revealer. Jesus himself is truth. And we are to stand in that truth, revealed by God in his word. We cannot fight against Satan unless we are grounded in that one and only infallible source of truth. Your word is truth. The Belgic Confession, we, we confess in contrast to the infallible truth of God that all men are liars. And every kind of philosophy or every kind of religion, every kind of uh, value system that is not grounded in the truth of God's word is one manifestation of the many variations of the lie. 
We need to learn the truth. We need to hold sound doctrine. And we need to hold it with conviction. We heard that already in this epistle. In chapter 4, we heard of the goal of God's grace for us in Christ, that we all come to the unity of the faith. Again, that's a reference to the objective revelation of what we are to believe. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth. Yes, in love. They grow up in all things into him who is the head. In the past weeks I met a few older couples and uh, began a conversation with him. Uh, one of these couples was uh, Roman Catholic. The other uh, uh, belonged to a denomination of which many of us have former connections. I kind of guessed that because I, I, I struck up a conversation with them in a hotel and found out uh, that uh, they were from Jenison, Michigan. And I found out that they had a Dutch last name, and I surmised that they probably were part of a Dutch community there, and I asked them, and yes, they indicated that they belonged to this denomination of which many of us are aware. But in conversation with this couple and the next day with that other couple, I found that, that they had both succumbed to relativism. And when I say relativism, I'm not simply talking about this philosophy that there is no objective truth. It all depends on your experience. It all depends on your perspective. Truth is all relative. It's not fixed and certain. Now, of course, that's a terrible lie. And people live by that kind of relativism. But there's another kind of relativism that Albert Moore identified, and that is the influence of relatives for evil. And in both instances, that was a big factor. Because this formerly or nominally reformed couple had this daughter with a doctoral degree in theology. And she was as liberal as the day is long. But when it comes down to discussing matters of truth, especially against the challenges that the Christian faith is facing today, well, they would prefer to go with their highly intelligent, gifted, learned daughter. Rather, some preacher that they just met, even though he quotes a lot of the Bible. And this other couple... Well, when it comes down to the challenges facing the Christian church, they have a granddaughter who identifies as bisexual. And in love for her, and under the influence of what she says and what she represents, they have fallen into this mushy, gushy idea that love is all important. And that means no judgment, means acceptance, because after all, we all have our faults and sins, and God is merciful. And this is the kind of language by which they showed that they had departed from the Word of God. And, you know, I tried to to reason with them. I quoted Scripture, but I ended up saying and eventually to both of them, just read the Bible. Read the Bible. Read it as the revelation of God. Believe that it's true. And be convinced that your religion and your ideas, whatever they may be, if they're not grounded in the teaching of God's Word, they're false. And you've been deceived. Pretty simple way of addressing the real issues, isn't it? But I'm afraid that when it comes down to it, there are a lot of religious people whose religious views are basically grounded in uh, a culture of which they're familiar, values, 
to which they become accustomed. And wherever the Bible seems to clash with those views, well, they have a, they have a deaf ears and blind eyes to what the text actually says. And it's trumped by their feelings and by the influences of their relatives and all kinds of lies that have taken them away from the word of God. And they all have their own truth. That's what they're interested in. My truth. Well, if my truth is just some subjective opinion or value system that I have adopted for myself, but it's not grounded in God's word, it shows that I have indeed been taken captive by the will of the liar. I have been deceived. If we're going to stand fast, we must stand fast in the truth. And that means in the word of God. We need to read the Bible as the true revelation of God and stand fast in it. There are more things in the Bible that are really basic to the gospel than many people think. Many people do not realize how basic to the gospel the doctrine of creation is. Because there we learn that God created mankind good and upright and holy. So that if his desires are distorted and wrong and confused and harmful, it's man's fault, not the creator's fault. And there we learn that man and woman was created in the image of God. And there we learn of true human dignity that distinguishes him from other creatures. There we learn what marriage is. There we learn the sanctity of human life. There we learn the unity of the human race because all races on earth have the same parents and united by blood and have the same kind of fallen humanity. There we learn of original sin. There we learn what happened through Adam. The doctrine of creation, those fundamental things revealed in the first chapters of Genesis are absolutely essential for our knowledge of the gospel, of Jesus Christ, of the world, of ourselves. We need to know the role of God's law. We need to know what God's law really is and how it reveals how we are to honor and love him supremely and our neighbor as ourself. And we need to know that it's the law of God that will be the basis for judgment, for the judgment of all people. Those who sinned in the law will perish in the law. Those who sinned without law will perish without law, but they'll still perish because they violated the evidence of the work of God's law on their hearts. They have consciences that accuse or excuse them. They know the difference between right and wrong, and it's by the law of God that God will judge the secrets of men in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to understand that. We need to know the role of the law in our Christian testimony. You know, a lot of people will say, so you think I'm going to be condemned just because I don't believe in your religion? You say I'm not going, I'm going to be condemned because I don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God and I have to adopt your Christian faith? And I think we may be too hasty to say yes, when actually we should say no. The reason you're going to be condemned is that you have broken God's law. You do not love and honor and serve the living God, nor do you love your neighbor as yourself. And yes, that's aggravated because if you've heard the message of salvation, you've heard the way of deliverance from the curse of God against you. You've learned the way of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So your guilt will be aggravated 
Because you've rejected the message of deliverance, which so many people never hear about. But you'll still be condemned because of your violation of God's holy law. People need to be saved from sin. Not from their victimhood. Not from the sorrows and troubles of their lives. Not from their addictions. Not from their anxieties. Not from their broken relationships. All those things are so many manifestations of the violation of God's law and its consequences. We need to know what repentance is. We need to know, need to know that it's different than saying, I'm sorry. One of these, uh, this, this gentle, kind lady that I talked to, she was a sweet lady. This, uh, this, uh, couple, Roman Catholics, you know, she says, well, whoever whispers the name of Jesus, even on their deathbed, will be saved. You know, that sounds so nice. But if you, if you go around saying that, you're gonna you foster, uh, a kind of presumption that will lead people to say, well, I can, I can sin throughout my life. And then I'll whisper the name of Jesus when I die. And I'll be saved just like that. As if it's some kind of a magical mantra. Jesus. Oh, well, you're saved. That's a lie. No, there must be true repentance and true faith in Jesus. A knowledge of who he is and what he has done. Yes, we need to know what repentance is. We need to know what faith is. We need to know the difference between justification and sanctification. We need to know that, yes, the standing of believers is in Christ such that they are justified by his blood and righteousness. So there is no condemnation in them. And they're not on a treadmill trying to earn God's favor by good works. Because they're saved by grace through faith in Christ. But the grace that justifies is also a grace that is operative in their lives. And they want to love and serve the Lord. Because they've been renewed by grace. That sanctification is always imperfect. It's always incomplete. It's progressive. But it's just as much a component of salvation as is the forgiveness of sins. Faith without works is dead. It's not true faith. We need to be grounded in these things, convinced of them. We need to stand fast in them. We could go on. Doctrine matters. Satan transforms himself as an angel of light. One of the ways he does that is he makes damning lies appear attractive and good. And God's love is perverted into the tolerance of wickedness. And God's mercy is perverted into comfort where there's no repentance and faith. And man's sincerity and man's efforts and his goodness replace Christ as the only way of salvation. We need to know the truth. We need to love the truth. The truth! We're not ashamed of that language. You know, our world gets its hackles up if you use such language, right? People are taught in the university that such claims to know the truth. Well, that's a reflection of a kind of oppressive system. You're just showing your privilege. If you speak of knowing the truth, oh, you don't realize it, but you're just showing your privilege because you've been influenced by this system whereby people in the name of the truth exercise power over others and they oppress them and they try to get them to conform to their values. There's no such thing as the truth. And if you think there is, you're a racist. But we hold to the word of God. 
And we believe in the truth. And we believe that it's undermined and threatened by the lies of the wicked one. And we believe what Paul says in Timothy when he says, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I charge you, therefore, the next chapter, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables, little stories with moral lessons, rather than holding fast to the truth. Vague and general notions of faith are not enough. It's one thing to believe in God's providence when everything's going well. It's another thing to see his fatherly hand when everything seems to be falling apart and going wrong. It's one thing to get catechism answers right for the minister, for the elders, and it's another thing to stand on them when they're undermined and they're attacked by everyone around you. It's one thing to be stable on a calm day. It's another thing in the storm of battle, in the evil day. Truth. Truth. And let me emphasize the importance again, brothers and sisters, of attending both worship services on the Lord's Day. If you are able, because it's the preaching of the gospel that is the primary means of grace. It's the primary way in which God the Holy Spirit works to establish and nurture people in the truth. And it's the second service of the two that really is aimed at establishing people in the truth of the doctrine of Scripture in a comprehensive whole way so that we cover all the important things. Imagine a soldier on the battlefield saying, well, you know, just give me half rations. I'm, I'm good with half rations. That's all I need. Maybe I can gather some, some treats and some snacks here and there, but uh, just give me half of, uh, of what you've appointed for everyone else. I think, well, that's, that's not very smart. He needs that food. He needs to be strengthened. He doesn't have an appetite for it. Well, there might be something wrong with him. He's going to suffer the consequences. You know, to say, well, I can come to one worship service, and that's enough for me. In effect, brothers and sisters, that's saying I'm content with half rations. I'm content with, with the minister doing like half of his job. He prepares two sermons every, every uh, week, but I only need one of them. If everybody thought like me, oh, the minister could only just prepare one sermon a week. Half rations, that's enough for me. No, no. God has blessed us with the opportunity to be strengthened in corporate worship twice on the Lord's Day to be established and grounded more and more in the truth. Let's not despise this precious gift and opportunity we have. Let's, let's use it for all it's worth. We need to be girded with truth. 
Secondly, your breastplate of righteousness. 14b. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. A, a breastplate, of course, that, that protects vital organs. Your heart, lungs, intestines. You know that the Lord Jesus put on righteousness as a breastplate. Yeah, the language of Paul here in Ephesians is taken from Isaiah 59. In verse 16 it says, When he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, therefore his own arm brought salvation for him, and his own righteousness it sustained him, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garment of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as with a cloak. In the context here, in the face of Israel's sin and departure from the truth, and in response to their desperate condition of guilt and its consequences, it's the Lord who is depicted here as going forth, clad in armor. Armor of righteousness and justice and zeal. And he brings judgment. He brings salvation by his own power, by his own saving work. But in that context, the, the breastplate of righteousness shines with zeal for God. It means righteous living in the face of evil. Now, that language of breastplate is used in other passages of Scripture. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, we are to put on the breastplate of faith and love. Again, both of those things involve the, the, the subjective uh, reception and outworking of the grace of the Holy Spirit, an active faith, an active love. In Second Corinthians uh, six verse seven, Paul describes the ministry of the gospel, and among those various things that characterize this ministry, he says, "By the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left." And so we understand this reference to be an inwrought. Righteousness, not the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's our justification. That's the basis for our standing before God. But the righteousness here refers to the uh, inwrought or imparted righteousness of the Holy Spirit, equipping the saints to live righteously and godly in this present age. It refers to those who have been created anew, They've put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. It's referring to those who were once darkness, but now are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Put on the armor of light, is what Paul says in Romans chapter 13. The enemy wants to lure us into worldliness, to draw us away from the high standards of truly Christian character and life. And we need to resist them. And we need to resist them by repenting of our worldliness, repenting of our compromises with evil. We need to put on Christ in his love for righteousness. Reformed commentator William Hendrickson says, apart from such a life, the would-be Christian has no defense against Satan. Satan's, accus uh, Satan's accusations. He has no assurance of salvation. And he also lacks the power to attack. For the testimony of the lip will be ineffective. The neighbor will not be one for Christ, and the evil one will not be vanquished. On the other hand, when righteousness in conduct is present, what a mighty weapon for defense and offense it becomes. We are to be zealous for right living, integrity of heart, and action. 
we got to move on. The third uh, weaponry described here is the footwear of the gospel of peace. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Proper footwear is necessary for, well, actually, it's necessary for a variety of things, isn't it? I know a number of the, the men just recently went hiking. And if you take a long hike, and if it's on a rather rough trail, especially where there's a lot of stones and rocks, you're going to get sore feet in a hurry if you're wearing light tennis shoes. And uh, you might lose your grip. And you might twist your ankle. So if you don't have a solid sole on your hiking shoes or boots, well, you have a handicap. Uh, good footing is important. One of the, uh, the liabilities of the Southern troops during the Civil War in the United States was that they were not well furnished with basic gear and including good boots. Eventually, many, many of them ended up fighting barefoot. Big disadvantage. And on the other hand, the victory of Alexander's and the Caesar's armies was attributed to their swift and effective movement. Their troops were well uh, supplied with these heavy leather sandals that provided stable footing and traction, spikes or nails driven into them so that they could hold and grip all different kinds of terrain. That was a factor in their effectiveness as a fighting force. So what's the application for that? How are we ready to engage the enemy? How can we properly be outfitted with the proper uh, footgear? so that we can move effectively? Well, the answer to that question, I suppose, could be put in another question, and it's this question. Do you have peace with God? Are you reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know him as your father who loves you and who cares for you? You see, that's essential, isn't it? Here we see the importance of our only foundation for a good conscience. Here we see that we cannot fight like slaves. We cannot fight like convicts forced to battle. I heard this awful account of uh, the war between Russia and Ukraine, including the fact that that Putin has, well, at the, at the beginning it was a matter of offering convicts and inmates their freedom if they would join in his warfare. But now they're being forced to fight for him, taken out of prison, in effect, to die in the battlefield. Because like Russian's long history, many of its soldiers are just used as cannon fodder. And the accounts of some of these former prisoners is just horrific. They, they're there to die, and they know it. They're being used to, to measure the distance of the enemy's artillery. What a desperate, miserable place to be in. What a desperate thing to try to fight as a Christian where you... Uh, are at enmity with your commander, where you don't believe that he has your best interests in, in mind, when you're not confident that he loves you, that he will protect you and care for you, he'll provide with you, you with everything you need. Well, that's our position as Christians, fighting under the banner of our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory is certain. Not a hair of our head shall perish. Though we should die, yet we shall live. We'll never die. And in the meantime, we have everything that we need. And we need not live in fear because we don't fight like slaves or ex-convicts, but as children in the care of our Father. And we fight already with a message of victory just ringing in our ears. Christ has come. Christ has taken upon himself our flesh in its weakened condition to suffer in our place 
And he wrought out that perfect righteousness by his obedience so that we might be assured of peace with God in him. And he suffered the cruel death of crucifixion as he's made an offering for sin. And he satisfied God's justice against a broken law and rose again. And he crushed the serpent's head. Even in his death, he was victorious. And now he's exalted over all. And through him, we are reconciled to God and called to this holy warfare and equipped with what we need to live as his children. So if you're slipping, if you're slipping in the Christian life, your, your feet are dragging, you need to basically tighten the straps of the gospel of peace and renew your confidence in Christ's love for you and his all-sufficient provision for your salvation and find invigoration in that to carry on in this spiritual warfare with confidence. Regain your footing in the gospel. Know that victory is certain. As Paul said, that God will crush Satan under your feet shortly. It's the God of peace who does this, who's established peace through Christ. And so we may fight with confidence in that peace that we possess in the Lord Jesus. May that encourage us. May it invigorate us. May it impart zeal to us. May we be zealous for the truth. May we be courageous to testify it, to speak it in love, the glory of our Redeemer. Amen.